Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Hey Jude, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The minute you let her under your skin, then you begin to make it better. I love how they spell out yeah for us over and over again, as if we don't know what they're saying. So every song have, has a story behind it. Anybody know the, the story behind that song, by chance? Every song has a story behind it. And whenever you know the story behind a song, the song takes on a new meaning. And so the story behind that song goes like this. John Lennon, who was the lead singer of the Beatles, and Paul McCartney, who was uh, also in the band, so John Lennon was married to someone named Cynthia. They had a son named Julian. And 
uh, John Lennon cheated on his wife. And so he left his wife, and he's now with his new girlfriend. And so the son, Julian, is obviously really sad and torn up over his parents' separation. And so Paul McCartney, who was in the band, decided to go out and meet with Cynthia, John's wife or separated wife, and also with John Lennon's son. And so he just wanted to go check and see. So you can imagine the, um, the, the band was like one big family, and then they have this, this wife, and they have Julian, the son. And so Paul was almost like an uncle to this kid. And now all of a sudden they're just separated because of John Lennon's affair. And so now he's going off to check on his, his friends, which you can imagine that might be an awkward conversation between John and Paul because Paul has to say, well, I'm going to go and check on your wife and your son they're separated from you because of your affair. So on the way out to meet with them, he writes, Paul McCartney writes this song, and the initial title of it was, Hey Jules, and it was meant to be a comfort and a source of comfort for um, Julian, his, his son. And so, of course, Jules doesn't sound as good in the song, so they changed the name to Hey Jude. And so this is a story behind the song. And so whenever you know the story behind a song, It brings new meaning to the song. It brings new understanding to the song. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 3. And Psalm chapter 3, this is also a song. Go ahead and turn there, Psalm chapter 3. And you can't fully understand any of the Psalms if you don't understand the story behind the words that you're reading. And so Psalm chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to read this to you. And it's not going to mean a whole lot to you at first. Then we're going to look at the story behind Psalm chapter 3. Here's what it says. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Selah was a word they would use in the Psalms, kind of like the word amen today. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Next slide, please. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So if you don't know the story behind Psalm chapter 3, you might just read over it and say, this sounds like many of the other Psalms, doesn't it? It sounds like, okay, someone is suffering and someone is asking for God, crying out to God for vindication and justice. But if you don't know the story behind the Psalm, the Psalm is not going to have power to you. And so the story behind this Psalm is a very depressing and very unique story. You guys know King David, King of Israel. Well, David had four sons. One of his son, Absalom, betrayed him. And so I want to put some points on the screen here just so you can follow the story and you don't get lost in the story. But this is a summary of David and and Absalom's relationship. First, Dave has four sons. Did I just call him Dave? Yeah, King Dave. Uh, Amnon, Absalom, Solomon, and Adoniah. Amnon, one of the sons, raped his sister Tamar. Absalom is her brother. This really upset Absalom, so Absalom is now angry. He then goes and murders Amnon. Then Absalom runs away for three years because of what he's done. Go to my next slide. 
Finally, Absalom is allowed to return to Jerusalem, but he still is not allowed to see his father David for two more years because David cannot forgive Absalom for killing Amnon. Absalom then tries to dethrone his own father David, even though Solomon has been prophesied to be the next king. Then David now flees from Jerusalem. So now Absalom has army. David has an army. And so Absalom um, is after David. So David decides to flee Jerusalem to get away from Absalom's armies and to try to find safety. So David leaves Jerusalem with his family and his close confidants. And Absalom is now trying to kill his own father, David. Now this story would not end well. You might know the end of the story, but Absalom would end up being killed in a battle. And so now David has had one of his sons rape his daughter. He's had another son kill that son. And now that son is trying to usurp the throne and now kill him. And then Absalom goes and he's killed as a result of trying to get the throne. So Psalm 3, Absalom is not dead yet in Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, Absalom is just trying to usurp the throne And David is on the run. David is no longer in Jerusalem at this point. And he is, you can imagine just the anguish as a father. I mean, so many many parents today, if if their son or daughter just goes off um, a pathway of following Christ, I mean, that's, that's just depressing for a parent. There's nothing more depressing than that for a parent. But to then have your, your son or your daughter killing siblings and then trying to kill you, and you're, you're God's chosen king. You know that you've been anointed by God, and this son doesn't understand that, doesn't get that. And Absalom's now trying to kill his father David. You can imagine putting yourself in David's shoes, the anguish that he must have felt as a father for his family, the turmoil that some of his sin actually led to this turmoil. And so with this backstory in mind, I want us to look at this passage more slowly now. So we're going to look back at verses 1 and 2. Now that you know the story behind Psalm 3, we'll look at verses just 1 and 2. Look on the screen with me. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. When you and I read those words, and you know that the foes he's talking about, the enemies that he's talking about, is his own son, And the armies that his son has accumulated so that he can hopefully kill him and take over the throne of Israel. And so verse, I want you to look at verse, verses one and two is all about one big idea with David. And it's this. Verses one and two is all about what David sees. The first two verses are all about what he sees around him, his surroundings, just his circumstances. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances. He is horrified at the state of his family. He is scared. He's also in a place of wondering, can I even trust God? God's anointed me king, but this does not look like this is going well. I can't even be in my own city, my own palace, because my son is trying to kill me. And these first two verses are all about what he sees around him. He feels overwhelmed. He feels surrounded. He feels betrayed. And I know that many of you in the room, you can relate to this idea. You can relate to being betrayed by a friend, by a parent, by someone at school. You can relate to being what it feels like to be betrayed by someone. And I think when 
betrayal happens in a family, that's one of the most painful things anyone can go through. When someone who is your flesh and blood and they betray you, turn their back on you, this is the kind of pain that um, many people find themselves and many of you may possibly in the room this morning. We also see in verse 2 where it says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So what these people are doing is they're not just trying to attack him, but they are taunting him now. So because David has been pushed off the throne, at least temporarily, in Jerusalem, and been pushed out into the wilderness with his armies, these men who are with Absalom, these ungodly men, they, they, they take this as a sign that God is on their side, that God is no longer on David's side. And they see David's circumstances, and even they say, the enemies say, God must not be on his side anymore. The tables have turned. And so we see this in verse, in verse uh, 2. But in verse 3, we see a turn. Every psalm that starts off like this, we see a turn at some point in the psalm. And in verse 3, we see this turn, and it always starts with the word, but. Now, you may have been in the main service this morning, and Mr. Stuart Briscoe, he talked about this word, and he said that whenever you hear that word in Scripture, it means something profound is about to be said. And so, Look at verse 3. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. That would be Jerusalem, the holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David moves now from what he sees his circumstances, his external surroundings, his his external circumstances and what he sees with his eyes, he now moves into what he believes. And you always see this in the Psalms. You see the person cry out for what's happening to them. Then they move into what they know to be true and what they believe. They hang on to their belief and their trust and their faith in God. Now, we don't know how much time passed from writing verse 1 and 2 to writing verse 3. The, the Psalms, whenever you read in the Psalms or any book of the Bible, it's not like they penned this in one sitting. This may have been weeks. may have been months. It's not as if David is working on Psalm chapter 3, and he's like, i got to crank this out. You know, i got to crank this out real quick. You know, Psalm chapter 3, here's verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. It's more like he's anguished. He is depressed. He writes verses 1 and 2, and then later on, after he spent some time just praying and wrestling and talking to God and crying out to God, then he goes back and he writes verse 3, 4, 5, and so on. And so in the middle of all this stress and anxiety and turmoil, betrayal, what does David do? He reminds himself what he believes. I want to contrast that with what you and I tend to do whenever we feel in the state like this, like David is in. We rarely go and remind ourselves what we believe. We rarely preach to ourselves like David's doing in this passage. Most of the time, we just turn, we turn inward. Most of the time, we just get anxious, and we don't want to tell someone else because we feel like if I, if I show that, it's going to show weakness. I don't know where to turn. Or we might go and tell someone, and we call it venting. We'll go and vent to someone and say, can you believe this is happening to me? 
But so often we don't do what David did and turn to what we believe and what we know to be true about who God is. If you look in this, in verses 3 to uh, 6, what is the result of him as he turns to his beliefs? He says, I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. How many of you find yourself, if, you, if you're anxious about something, sleep is the worst time, right? Because you're by yourself. Everyone else is asleep in the house. And all you have is you and your thoughts. And you lay and you try to fall asleep and you can't because you're just thinking about worst case scenarios. What if this happens? What if that happens? My wife is a professional at this. Seriously, I'll go to bed. I'm, I'm out, you know. And she's, you know, next morning she's like, I didn't sleep at all last night. I was like, what happened? She's like, I just had this thought in my head, you know, thought about the kids and what if this happens to them or that happens to them. And I just kept going through my mind and I just stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning. That sounds like a problem, right? But it's hard. I mean, people have a tough time going to sleep because they're anxious. They're in turmoil. And David says when he goes to his, his beliefs, when he looks at, it, at what he really believes about God, this is when he's able to turn and actually go to sleep because God has given him some kind of peace. And so the first thing I want you to know, when you go through a time like this in your life, you have to remember who God is. You have to remember who he is, God's character, who he is in his person. We've had you guys looking at how to study the Bible in recent months, and one of the first questions we ask you as you look at any Bible passage is, what does this passage say about God? And the reason why we ask you to think about that question is because that is, that is the one thing that will get you off track in your walk with God, is when you start to have doubts and questions about who God is and his character. This is the thing that got Adam and Eve in trouble. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, the thing that Satan attacked them on was God's character and God's goodness. He calls into question, he says, come on, would God really say? He's calling into question God's character. He's basically saying a good God would never do fill in the blank. He's calling into question who God is. And so one of the most important things whenever you are going through a trial or any kind of suffering like this, like David finds himself in, you have to reflect on who God is and what you believe about him. Who he is and what you believe about him. So I want to give you some points from this passage. When you and I go through trials... What we really believe about God comes out. Most of us think that we hit a trial and we think, I'm suffering, I'm, gonna, I'm angry at God, I'm going to turn my back on God. We don't premeditate it like that, but we're angry at God and so we turn from God. And what happens when we do that, what we don't realize, is that the trial did not really change our belief about God. What happened was, the trial caused our beliefs to bubble to the surface and caused those beliefs to actually come out. So deep down inside of us, things are going along, things are going well, life is successful, and then tragedy hits. And what you really believe about God is what comes out in the middle of a trial. 
And so David, he's being squeezed in the middle of this time of suffering. What's coming out of him eventually, once he gets past the doubt and the anxiety and the turmoil, is his real belief about who God is. The second thing you see in this passage is that we need to allow what we believe about God to overcome what we see. We need to allow what we believe about God to overcome what we see. Let's get the next slide up. There we go. We need to allow what we believe about God to overcome what we see around us, our circumstances. And if you aren't honest, I want you to see this. The title of this series is called Honest Worship. If you're not honest about what you see and the circumstances of your life, the, the situation that you're in, if you're not honest about those things before God, then you'll never be able to tap into this deep well of belief and trust and faith in God. You've got to go through the honesty like David is doing in verses 1 and 2 so that you can then get to the beliefs and the worship and the faith and the trust. Because if you don't express honesty before God, you're never going to feel the need to get there in your beliefs, in your faith, in your trust. You're just going to sit. Your emotions are going to turn inward. You're going to just implode on yourself, or you're going to go and talk to a friend, and that's going to be it. And you're never going to turn to God in the midst of whatever you're going through. The third thing it shows us is that we need to be honest before God. We have to be honest before God. Being dishonest before God makes no sense. Because God knows exactly what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And the reason why you and I have a difficult time being honest to him is because we don't want to admit it to ourselves. If we're struggling with weakness, God already knows it. But the thing is, you and I don't want to admit it to ourselves. Because then we feel weak. And we feel like we don't have it all together. And so David is showing us a perfect example of being honest before God in our worship before him. The fourth thing it shows us is that we need need to see God as our shield. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this concept of what it means for God to be our shield um, as we look at Psalm 3. So back then they had two different kinds of shields. The kind of shield that you're probably thinking of is the one where you've got it strapped onto your forearm. And if you're right-handed, you have a sword in your right hand, a shield in your left hand, and it's a fairly small shield. And as you're fighting off the enemy with your right hand, you're putting the shield up for your, with your left forearm to hold off their sword. This is a, a, one kind of shield they could have back then. But the kind of shield that David's describing in this little passage, he says, you are a shield about me. That means around me. So this is not a small little shield like you'd think of when you think of a shield. This is like a bigger shield, one that would um, almost be around someone like a semicircle. And this kind of shield was, was much bigger. And the point of this kind of shield was to advance against the enemy. So picture this. The army's following along, and they have their shields, and they're walking like this, and they are advancing towards the enemy. And this is a shield that is more around them, their body. And they have to follow their general. And so they are walking into a battle with this shield around them. This is the kind of shield that David is referencing um, when he says this phrase. 
And so the bigger shield is designed to follow your general into battle. And I want you to think about this picture. This kind of shield only works if you are following the general. If you get scared and you turn and you run, you open yourself up for arrows from behind and possible death for you. So this kind of shield only works when you're face forward following after the general. And so David is not saying in this passage, God, I know you're not going to let bad things happen to me. What he's saying in this passage is not that, but he's saying, I know your protection only works while I'm going forward, while I'm following you. I only have your protection if I'm following after the general. You're a shield around me. This does not mean that God's not going to take you and I into battles and into some suffering and into some anxiety and some depression. But it also doesn't mean, it means you're never, it doesn't mean you're never going to experience pain and, and loss and suffering and trials. Um, in fact, if David was, God's, David was God's anointed one to lead Israel, and so if anyone had a reason to be upset or to feel entitled, like, God, why is this happening to me? It's going to be David, right? Because he is king. He, he's been anointed by God, prophesied by God to be king of Israel. And if anyone had a reason to be, feel entitled or to be entitled and wonder, why is God allowing me to suffer? It's going to be King David. And so we know from Psalms and even David's life and even our own lives that as Christians, we are not entitled to a life of a suffering-free life. In fact, put my next quote up there. You got it up there already. Sometimes God allows pain today to save you from greater pain tomorrow. Sometimes God God allows you to go through some pain, like he allowed David to go through some pain, to keep you from having greater pain tomorrow. You can see this, I'm sure, probably in your own life. That sometimes God allows things to happen to us that are truly painful, truly agonizing, but he might allow some of those smaller pains to happen so that you're prevented from a bigger pain later on. I think of a simple example for you would be, um, let's say a relationship that you're in, guy-girl relationship, and it ends, and it ends badly. And you're, you're just, you're depressed. You're in a place of, well, what happened there? Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? And God might be allowing you to go through this smaller pain now to save you from a greater pain later on. God might be keeping you from a greater pain that you're unaware of later on. At times, God gives us a loss now to keep us from a greater loss later on. And I think most, whenever, when, we, when most of us think of pain, most of us think of something negative. We think pain, we think negative. Pain's not always bad. God gives us pain sometimes to remind us of what's important and remind us um, that he's God and that we submit our lives to him. And so the picture that we get of, of David in this story is, is a picture of someone who keeps following, someone who keeps obeying in spite of what they see around him. He lets his beliefs overcome what he sees and his circumstances. And I know whenever we see a passage like this, our first reaction is to say, you know, what do we do with all this? How, how do we really make sense of a passage like this? And I think since this passage is all about betrayal, and David being betrayed, I think we can't talk about betrayal unless we talk about Jesus. 
Because Jesus himself was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas. David's betrayed by his own son, Absalom. And so you have to think about Jesus. If you're sitting here this morning and you're maybe not a believer, and you are are checking out what it means to follow Christ, I want to give you some encouragement this morning that if you've been betrayed, if you've experienced betrayal in your life, Jesus knows exactly how that feels. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. One of his 12, Judas, betrayed him, which ended up leading to his, eventually to his crucifixion. Now God, of course, used that sin to bring about glory for himself in the cross. But I imagine that Jesus, in his humanity, still felt the pain and the loss of his friend Judas betraying him selling him for 30 pieces of silver. And so Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed. And I want to close with just two points for you to think about, and here's the points. Jesus was betrayed to empower us to forgive those who have betrayed us. It's only when you look at the life of Christ, the betrayal of Christ, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, can you and I find the power and the resources that we need to forgive those who have betrayed us. Secondly, Jesus was betrayed so we can be forgiven of our betrayal of him. Because I don't want you to leave here this morning and just see yourself as just a victim. Yeah, yeah, I've been betrayed. I've got to find a resource in Jesus Christ for those that have betrayed me so I can forgive them. But here's the reality, guys, is that each one of us has been the betrayer. Each one of us has betrayed Jesus. Each one of us has betrayed God. And so you have to throw yourself on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ that's only found in the cross of Christ if you're going to be forgiven of our betrayal of him. And so this morning we're going to do something a little bit differently. We're going to go ahead and um, we're going to head to breakout groups here in a moment. And the reason why we're doing that uh, this morning is I've realized that I need to probably focus in September um, on you guys doing that a lot more, at least during that month, because your leaders need to know who you are. And they want to put faces with names. So here's how we're going to do this. Um, I'm going to dismiss my leaders um, right now, and uh, you guys can head to your breakouts. I need the leaders to grab a couple of things from the table over here on the ping pong table. You're going to grab a list of your groups, freshman guys, freshman girls, Sophomore guys, sophomore girls, grab that list, grab some pens, grab a little stack of, uh, of the guest cards there next to the, um, the pens there. Also grab the discussion sheet on the other side of the table. Here's what you're going to do. When you guys get to your discussion, you, you have your discussions first, and then after your discussions, I'm asking your leaders to pass the, um, the list around of like all your names and all that kind of stuff. They're going to pass it around. I need you guys to do me a favor. I need you to check all your information your address, your phone numbers, um, your grade, your school, everything on that list. And if it's good, check your name off. Check it next to your name. If it's not good, if it's something's inaccurate, I need you to fill out a new guest card and give that to your leader today. The reason why we're doing this this morning is because um, I constantly get, we're trying to contact you guys and shepherd you guys well, and I constantly get feedback from my leaders saying, hey, these are all wrong numbers, these are outdated and also from our G group leaders as well. So please cooperate the next uh, 
few times as we do this on Sunday morning. And uh, so once leaders grab that, you guys can head to your rooms. And then um, you guys are now dismissed to go. I think we've got um, uh, upper class.